once again from the Bardic College. The AD&D 1st Edition rulebook, Deities and Demigods, was the first D&D product that provided details about the gods, supernatural planes of existence, and concepts underlying the cleric class. The first printing of the book contains Morcox's Melibornian gods, as well as the creatures from the Cthulhu mythos. Urban legend says that TSR didn't realize that they couldn't use those characters. But the truth is, between the first and second printings, newcomers Chaosium started producing the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game and the Stormbringer role-playing game. TSR could have kept those sections in the book, but they had to credit Chaosium. Eventually, TSR decided they didn't want to advertise for another RPG company and cut the content, publishing the shorter work as Legend and Lore. Now, if you want to talk about IPs that TSR used that they didn't have the rights to use, just ask the Tolkien estate about that. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D has called to us to be its heralds. Hi, I'm Ange, and I have been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnomecast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. And I kind of became in charge of the whole thing in 2021. <laughs> And I'm Jared, the review gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, whatdoiknowjr.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. All right, today, after we look at the games we're running in the campaign journal, we'll be talking about adding divine details to your player characters. Then we'll have some recommendations of D&D-related content for you to check out in our downtime research segment. So campaign journal, uh, I only got to play the city. Well, I got to play Jared's game, <laughs> but he's going to talk about that. So I'm not going to talk about it. But of my other two games, I only got to play the city of cows game. Uh, half of the players for the Undermountain game were at SUNY Geneseo State University of New York. For those who don't know, game convention running gag. Uh, so we ended up skipping the Undermountain campaign. The funny thing is, is that going forward into the future, the reverse is going to be true because we're going to need to miss the next two sessions of City of Cowls. Family emergency came up this weekend, so we're not playing this coming weekend. And then the following weekend, we're supposed to play the GM and his family are going on a cruise <laughs> and didn't invite the rest of us. So we're not playing on the cruise or anything like that. Not a D&D cruise. Not a D&D cruise, but we should still get to play Undermountain. So that'll be cool. In the City of Cows game, uh, we basically immediately started right with having teleported to the Dragonborn clan's region into the bowels of an old wizard's tower. We expected a fight right away, but it turns out, no, 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 there were just refugees hiding down there. Uh, <laughs> and they led us up to the surface where we met with the two wise women of the clan, uh, basically the older one who used to be the the wise woman of the clan and then the younger one who was the current one married to the young chieftain the young chieftain was in a coma and unable to be magically healed it turns out he had been grievously wounded by some terrible demonic thing and his dreams were being haunted so re and modrin basically did that dream transference thing again and went into his dreams and ended up fighting off this evil demon. It's, it's a Baylor. It's a Baylor. <laughs> We're going to be fighting a Baylor. They fought him off and freed 
the young chieftain from his clutches so he could actually wake up and get some healing. He's still missing an arm, so he is in no shape, you know, to go back fighting again. And his mother, the old wise woman, felt that it would probably be a good idea to declare Re in charge of the clan for the foreseeable future, since she had learned of Re's mission to reunite all of the dragonborn clans. Now, more than half of the Rage Drake dragonborn did not make it to this place. This place being the kind of the remnants of an old wizard tower that was warded against anything demonic or infernal, I should say, because I think it works against both demons and devils. I honestly always get them confused, but I'm pretty sure we're dealing with demons because they're chaotic either way. (laughs) This place wards them off, which means the clan is safe, but many of their warriors have been lost. Uh, Their their numbers are incredibly decimated, and Re was concerned that it seemed unlikely that even in the face of this demonic invasion that so many would have been unable to make it to this location. So we decided to do some scouting along the path that the clan traveled to see if we could find out what happened to some of them. We had a few encounters along the way with possessed undead, uh, which is really creepy to have an undead <laughs> dragonborn possessed by a demon. Not, not pretty. But we ended up discovering this very large demon and a couple of undead minotaurs trying to bash their way into something. We ended up fighting them and, and getting rid of them, but we decided to stop there because it was getting pretty late and Tristan was pretty sure that we couldn't do the next things in a reasonable amount of time, so it was better to just pause there and then when we pick up again, which is going to be in a month, I'm very sad, (laughs) we'll probably have this running battle through these old catacombs seeing if there's any of the Dragonborn clan that we can rescue. One of the things that I really like that you touched on there is that seeing, you know, you talked about eventually you're going to have to fight the Baylor. The fact that you can run into it in a dream is one of those things that I really like where you actually have a chance to meet a villain before you you actually clash with them because it, that is a rough thing in D&D to actually, you know, meet a villain and get any kind of feeling for them before you just, you know, roll initiative and start hacking at them. Yeah, it's a problem in a lot of role-playing games Mm -hmm. where if you put the bad guy in front of your players, you have to give the players an opportunity to do the things they they would do. And no, it's no fun to have your villain monologuing and then the player's like, no, no, I just just firebolt him in the head. (laughs) Okay, but this is dramatically not as interesting as I wanted it to be. Oh, and by the way, I credit yeah, by the way, I critted. We rolled max damage, and he is just dead. Actually, the, the fight we had, I don't remember what type of demon we were fighting at the end of the last session, but since we hadn't had... Basically, I had Dove drop her tactical nuke on the creatures because she has a an ascended dragon orb, which lets her once per day cast any spell in her repertoire at ninth level (laughs) and i am also uh an elemental adept for cold damage which means i don't no ones stay every we do it as a reroll of as written Mm -hmm. it's basically it changes to a two which helps 
Tristan actually did the math when I decided to take that feat. And he's like, it's a little bit better for you to reroll, but it's not that dramatically different. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're sticking with. But it's still just, yeah, I'm just dropping tactical nuke on <laughs> the bad guys. And and because I have elemental adept, the demons don't get to do the uh, damage mitigation uh, on the elemental damage. Yeah, no, uh, no resistance there. Yeah, no resistance. <laughs> I will refrain from my, uh, my nightmarish uh, fantasy game in Savage Worlds where in the first round of combat, they got exploding dice that off a dragon. It was it was very traumatic to me. <laughs> yeah, when we were talking about, you know, players uh just completely disrupting a GM's plans by rolling really well. <laughs> I was thinking of Savage Worlds uh -huh. and the way the dice explode <laughs> in that game cuz you got a D4 damage and that D4 just keeps rolling fours and suddenly you've done 32 points of damage. So in my Midgard game, the adventurers got to take the winter off, so they had 90 days of downtime. And I believe most of that downtime went into learning languages, tools, and performing religious service. <laughs> then the adventurers got some gifts. The prophet of Sagotan brought them a crystal ball with true seeing. So we'll see what kind of shenanigans they get up to there. I was not going to give them a crystal ball that lets them cast spells through it because no. <laughs> <laughs> and Yurazaza, who is the leader and uh, ruler of this region, as well as their boss, she gave them a Basically, she's having her ambassador look for ways to declare any of them dragon blooded so that they can get higher status in the empire and they're allowed to own land and things of that nature. So since Ivy was had her soul bonded to a void dragon, she was the first one that actually got a writ saying that she is technically dragon blooded. But uh, <laughs> Ambassador Darius was basically trying to come up with any way for the rest of them to sound like uh, they were dragon blooded. Other than Marin, because Marin's a dragonborn, so he doesn't need to worry about that. Yeah, Marin's a dragonborn. He's covered. We can probably do some shenanigans with Kazina's lineage to declare. Probably going to be a little harder with Mazrum. Yeah, Mazrum's a little bit uh, harder than the rest of you, because Kazina, while her uh, her grandfather is a devil, before he was a devil, he was uh, cursed to be a uh, wasteland dragon. So we're not going to call it cursed, but... <laughs> <laughs> it is a relative in the family line somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Mazrum is just too dwarf. <laughs> yes, he is very much a dwarf, unfortunately, for these purposes. The ambassador also brought them a new job, and this new job entails keeping the herald of the sultan's court happy while he is visiting Maria. Babysitting. <laughs> Basically, yes. The herald of the sultan's court is Jabir, who is a fairy dragon. They spent a good amount of time like preparing a place for him in the uh, manor, which also got deeded to Marin, but will also be able to sign on anyone else's owners once they are dragon blooded. As they were getting this area set up for Jabir, their staff cook cooked a lot of uh, sweets and fruits and things like that. And Jabir appreciated all of this. But the thing he really, really wanted was to go on an adventure <laughs> with the party. <laughs> So last time around, I gave them, uh, it was actually payment for helping out the one mercenary that was taken prisoner by the night hag. And she gave them a key and the key was to this fortress that has been locked up for over 50 years, ever since the uh, dragon empire took over this part of the world. Initially, I gave this 
fortress at the beginning of the campaign. That's almost like over a year now. Yeah. But um, I gave this fortress a Greek name that I failed to practice saying in the entire time that this campaign has been going on. So now that I need to, I could not pronounce it to save my life. <laughs> so DMs, helpful tip. If you're going to name something, practice saying it. <laughs> And, and honestly, saying something out loud will help you realize when you've made it sound like something else. My niece, her first D&D character was a dwarf wizard. She named Felthiest Malemore, which her sisters proceeded to call Filthiest Mailman. <laughs> I mean, players will find a way to do that anyway, but you don't want to make, make it any easier for them. You don't want to leave the door wide open no. and say, here, come here. But speaking of doors being wide open, they did decide to take Jabir with them to explore this fortress, which we are calling the Clockwork Fortress because that is its colloquial name and now its only name. <laughs> <laughs> so they use the key. Um, actually, they had to do like a sliding door puzzle in order to find the keyhole. They open the door and the fortress itself is reconfigurable. So all of the uh, the hallways will you know disassemble and reassemble. And we'll shift around the location of the the fortress to take it to a few set points that are actually built within it. But a lot of the other rooms and the hallways are all malleable things. And there are some levers and some dials that are usually on the wall nearby that you can manipulate. And that will tell it how many hallway segments that you need or whether you want to go upstairs or downstairs. This will be interesting. I, I hope everybody enjoys this um, so far. They configured a few hallway segments in order to get to the general's quarters and they found a code book and the code book. Anytime something needs to be input into those uh, dials or levers, they can mark off one of the 10 uses they have for this code book and just automatically succeed with it. I want to see how that works out, too. Um, there's a suit of armor and a sword in there. They haven't done much with those yet. There's this nice little speaking cylinder that came out, which is basically just, you know, a cylinder with a bunch of lines in it and it rolls around in circles and a, a tinny voice comes out of it and it comes out and tells them that the general has his rest period set up to last for four hours. So it will, you know, it will alert him whenever four hours have passed. The PCs are ready to head out for more of the fortress. We didn't have a lot of danger going on, but there was a lot of interesting stuff going on. It was definitely the exploration part of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I will put you on the spot live here. Did you like the idea of the, uh, you know, the directory that's just telling you how many hallway segments you need in order to get to a place? Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. It's the type of thing that if it were in a video game, it would drive me nuts until I figured it out. <laughs> and I would probably end up going to the Internet and looking up how to do it after a few failed attempts. And anyone that listened to the Gnome Stew that we recorded a couple weeks back, you may recognize one of my uh, one of my inspirations when I mentioned it as one of the games that I played a whole lot. So <laughs> I am not embarrassed at all to pull things from video games. <laughs> oh, do not hesitate to pull from wherever. <laughs> Welcome to the Dungeon Master's Workshop. Last year, we talked about the difference between gods and warlock patrons, but since we revisited warlocks in our last episode we thought we'd touch on clerics and other divine classes and how the divine in your campaigns can inform your pc's backstory and motivation 
D&D doesn't officially have a primal power source outside of the 2024 Unearthed Arcana playtest, but for our purposes in this discussion, we're going to roll druids and rangers into the divine classes, since druids and rangers kind of also feature reverence for nature in a way that mirrors clerics and paladins and their reverence to their divine principles. The idea of a pantheon of gods has been deeply woven into most D&D settings for as long as the game has had settings. But can you do a setting without gods? And if you don't have gods, what is what does that mean for divine characters? Where does that divine magic come from? So one of the interesting things is that D&D actually answered this themselves in second edition because in Dark Sun, there are no gods. And all of the uh, clerics that exist in that setting are actually venerating the elements. And it's sort of like the leftover energy that's still there from when the gods left, because it is very much a post-apocalyptic setting. What's interesting about that is it, it answers whether you can have a setting without gods, but also it heavily implies there were gods at one point in time. Mm-hmm. I think you can. It is really strange because if you know all the backstory Middle Earth, you know that it's not a setting without gods, but if you just read the actual books and don't get into the appendices, that's never really a part of the story. Yeah. It's tricky, but I think if you're still going to have clerics and paladins, there does need to be that idea of some tradition that calls you to a higher calling. This isn't exactly D&D, but this makes me think a bit about Dragon Age. Mm-hmm. I, I will tangent briefly to tell you about one of my gaming horror stories. <laughs> I was at Gen Con the year Dragon Age was released, and I signed up for a game to play this. And I get to the table, and one of the characters the GM has on the table is a quote-unquote dwarf cleric. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And he's like, it's Dwarf Cleric. And I'm like, but, but, okay, two points here. In the Dragon Age setting, dwarves can't use magic, period. Like, I mean, they could use a magical item, certainly, but they cannot cast magic. They are cut off from the source of magic. Second, there is no divine magic. There is just magic. There's no arcane and divine. It's just magic. Some people have a talent for healing magic. Some people have a talent for I'm going to blow things up magic. But (laughs) there is no healing magic. And it it became very apparent that this GM had no interest in the Dragon Age setting at all. He just wanted to run D&D without it being D&D. That's an interesting segue to Dragon Age because the dwarves in Dragon Age worship their ancestors. Yes. It's not that the setting doesn't have gods. It doesn't have religion. It's just that there is no divine magic. Magic is something completely separate from faith and religion. I really do like that um, that element of dwarves having ancestor worship as, as their primary religion. It feels very dwarven, um, and it's something that Robert Schwab did that in Shadow, uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord, too. I really enjoy the Dragon Age setting. It's definitely fantasy. It's your full-blown D&D-style fantasy, but with different flavoring and different touches on it. I believe their um their goal when they made it, they said something about how they wanted they wanted Lord of the Rings with more um Game of Thrones consequences to it. Well, the the other thing to point out is that 
Bioware made Dragon Age when they could no longer make Baldur's Gate games because <laughs> they didn't have the D&D license anymore. <laughs> so they made Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, or at least worked with companies that made them. I think Bioware was the ones that made those two. And then couldn't make another one. And they're like, we really want to do a fantasy game. So what are we going to make? One of these days, we'll have to find a topic where we can actually dig into the the horrendous history of uh, D&D video game licensing and why some <laughs> games couldn't get made because deals were made with certain companies so other people couldn't make sequels anymore. And Yep. It was a massive mess. And for a long time, Hasbro was extremely frustrated because some of this stuff happened before Hasbro bought uh, Wizards of the Coast. Yep. So let's talk about the ways in which gods and religions interact with our settings. How do they play a part in the worlds our game inhabits? Well, recently, I just had a uh, prophet of one of the major dragon gods uh, <laughs> give you guys a, a job to do. And you actually got to see that dragon god eat an island. So <laughs> I like using divine characters, but sparingly. Like, I don't like gods showing up left and right in a setting. but I do like the idea that once they do show up, they kind of tell people that things are escalating. I've played in a Forgotten Realms game where the gods, I mean, it's Forgotten Realms. The gods, you know, they show up and have tea with you sometimes. Sometimes they decide to date you, Mistra and Gale. I don't know what's going <laughs> on there. But the gods are much more directly involved in things. And my cleric, who was a dragonborn tempest cleric, who basically followed Cord, basically would have conversations with him. <laughs> he would summon her up, you know, dream-wise, and they'd have, a, they'd have some ale and talk about what was going on and what needed to happen next and go from there. It was a lot of fun. At the same time, most of the games I have run have been set in the Eberron setting, where it is very unlikely the gods you know, the, the, the seven are going to show up. Mm -hmm. They're more ideas and thoughts than, than an actual entity that's going to show up. Eberron has some interesting mix of stuff like that. Like there is the Silver Flame, which is a religion of itself in one of the countries. And I don't know that there's a specific entity tied to that, but it still grants powers and there's an undying lich queen elf who also has her own evil religion. It's, it's an interesting mix of ideas as far as religion goes. And I believe I brought this up before, too, but I, I still love, like, it, I know at least one of the books references Warforged that worship a god that they are still assembling. So they are worshiping <laughs> a god that does not exist yet, but he will exist because they are building him. Oh, that's got to be happening somewhere in the Mornland. <laughs> Yeah. In my um, Storm King's Thunder game, I had Sirik show up for a while, and I was having Sirik kind of play Loki, where he he wasn't hindering the PCs. He wasn't really helping them, but at the same time, he didn't really like all of these giants rampaging all over the place. So he would show up to heckle them and potentially, you know, see if they wanted to bargain away, you know, whatever they wanted to be doing for his benefit. That was kind of fun. It was probably the most active I made deities in any campaign, but they couldn't count on him for anything because it's Sirik. This is the <laughs> god of madness and lies. He just shows up to taunt them and have a few conversations with them on long trips. 
So most D&D settings have a pantheon of gods representing different domains. Can a D&D setting accommodate monotheism? Um, there's been a few that have attempted it, and there's also a few D&D adjacent things that have kind of addressed this question. Uh, Monty Cook's Tola setting. There are multiple gods, but there is a religion where they venerate one particular god that they see as above all of the rest of them. And that is played up as almost like a Catholic church corollary. Mm-hmm. So it feels very monotheistic because the other gods aren't really what the primary culture worships. You know, it's like they still exist, but they aren't really on that level. It's kind of funny that a lot of these settings where they do lean towards a monotheistic religion, it feels very Catholic. Yes. Well, and the other one that I was going to mention is the uh, the Church of Andraste in uh, Dragon Age. Yep. Feels very Catholic. Oh, yeah. I was even thinking about the Church of the Silver Flame in Eberron. It feels very Catholic. And to a certain extent, if you we were just talking about how if you didn't know the backstory to Middle Earth and hadn't read the appendices, you wouldn't know this. But if you do know it, Middle Earth is kind of a monotheistic place, depending on how you refer to all of the other immortal things that uh, Iluvatar created. Because there is that feeling that Iluvatar is the only real god and the rest of them are kind of maybe archangels or, you know, lesser divinities or, you know, what have you. So, again, it's it's kind of a fuzzy, uh, a, a fuzzy monotheistic, like it depends on, you know, what your definition of God is. Game of Thrones also had multiple religions in it, and one of them was the uh, faith of R'hllor, which was a monotheistic religion in the middle of a polytheistic world. And I'm not even going to try and untangle all of that because there was a lot going on there and there was a prophecy and somebody had to die and come back. And one thing happened in the show and we don't know what would ever happen in the books if uh, Martin ever gets back to them. So that's about (laughs) all I'm going to say about that. That having been said, I think you can accommodate monotheism, but I think you're going to have to do one of two things. Either you have a church that is monotheistic amongst other religions that are not. Or you're going to have to decide, is this the actual only divinity that you have in your campaign? I think you also have to, if if you're going to do that, if you're going to go that route, how do you handle the domains? Yeah. Because in Eberron, the Church of the Silver Flame has very specific domains tied to it. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy. The character only believes in one god, one religion. They're going to follow that, but it has very specific domains. Somebody else may choose to be a cleric of something else and get the Tempest domain or the Grave domain or something along those lines. If you're going with the world only worships one god, how do you account for a cleric having two drastically different domains but still being part of the same religion? Yeah, and I think one of the things that you can address with that is to just... If you look at real world religions, there are a lot of times there are separate orders and there's different Mm -hmm. orders of priesthoods that they all believe the same thing. But the priesthood itself is not as focused on certain things like some of them are about going out and proselytizing. Some of them are about, you know, maintaining, you know, the, the actual structure and aspects of the church itself. In that case, I think you need to do the work to kind of figure out what would different orders look like within that religion Mm -hmm. and how are they divided up? Um, a lot of times you have, you know, different patron saints that kind of guide that order. 
So you don't have other gods, but you have a godlike thing that you're attaching some of your story elements to. Yeah. I was going to bring up, hey, since we mentioned the Catholic Church, let's talk about saints. <laughs> you can find a saint for almost anything. Oh, yeah. Well, the other thing that's interesting is um, when you mentioned the Forgotten Realms, they moved away from this a little in second edition, but in first edition, a lot of the gods like Ilmatter or Orm were demigods that served a greater god, and they were almost more like saints than they were separate divinities. Tyr being the god of justice was served by Torm, who was the god of duty. So if you are a guardsman that you know wants to protect something, Tyr might have been your primary deity, but also you have a special place in your heart for Torm because of you know your guarding things. Like I said, it kind of faded from second edition on, but in a lot of the, the demigods in the, the original you know, aspect of the setting really were kind of almost like saints to the greater gods in the setting. So moving on, the, the chosen one narrative often pops up in fantasy games. What are some of the ways this can work for divine characters in D&D? Also, on a practical level, how do you deal with tying a chosen one style plot to the character of a player who may or may not be able to continue playing in the game as life does what life does? <laughs> Let me turn this back on you, Ange. What are some problems that arise when you have a chosen one in a game when you have multiple people sitting at the table that should all be having fun? Well, if you have one chosen one, you end up with the problem of that player always having to have their character in the spotlight and everyone else falling aside. It's the type of thing you'll, you, referencing another game, Doctor Who. A bad GM will run Doctor Who where only the player playing the Doctor gets to do anything cool. That's not fun. That is not the way the game system is designed. The game system is designed to give balance to the players like a companion, like Rose, who is a shop girl, to basically do things that are just as cool as a doctor can, but through a kind of a different manner. When you have that one chosen special character and everyone else is their Xander and, you know, Buffy's friends. Yeah. It can be a problem when you're supposed to be able to focus on everyone at the table. So you really need to be careful with that. It is interesting that you bring up Buffy because it does kind of bring something to mind in that some people did feel more equal to Buffy than others. And I will throw out there like Angel, for example. Mm -hmm. But then you have to kind of go that extra yard to give everyone their thing. Like you may not be the chosen one, but you are also this very, very special thing. Exactly. And as I mentioned in the, the framing of the question, you also end up with the problem. If you tie your plot to this character, what do you do when they can't be there, when they can't play the game anymore? I ran into this with the Red Gauntlets campaign because... Everyone got a destiny. All of the players got a, a mission that they had to fulfill, a destiny that they were given from the Draconic Prophecy. Mm -hmm. And man, did I have to jump through some hoops to keep <laughs> that going and not completely break the ideas of it. I honestly, I think one of the better ways that I've seen this handled is you don't want your chosen one to be the one that assembled the team to go do a thing. Everyone should have a reason for wanting to do the things that need to get done in the campaign. Mm -hmm. Because if the chosen one is the one that's driving everyone to do it and then they, they die or go away or get lost or whatever, then everyone else does start to kind of wonder, why are we doing this? Are we meant to do this? Everyone needs to have a reason. And if you're talking about divine characters, 
I think in that case, your chosen one isn't necessarily the chosen one that has to complete this task. It is the one that the God said, this is important to me. You go in there and make sure that the rest of them have support and can finish this, this quest. And in that case, it's a little bit different chosen one than it is. You are the only one that can do this thing. This is, you are someone that I expect to help the people accomplish this thing. I never had to do it in the Red Gauntlets campaign, but one of the thoughts I had, if I ever had to remove a character, the idea would be is that their mission transfers to somebody else. So whatever new character was brought in would be like, hey, this tattoo just showed up on my body <laughs> uh-huh. and I feel like I'm supposed to talk to you people. What does this mean? <laughs> you know, because they each one was marked with a tattoo that told them the artifact they were supposed to retrieve. You can also, I don't recommend this, you can also do the vague chosen one, like you are chosen to do something really important, but we're not telling you what it is yet. <laughs> so it doesn't feel any more important than what the rest of the party comes up with but you're still kind of feeling a little bit more special than everyone else. So it can still be a problem there. The fuzzy chosen one, like what am I actually supposed to do thing is interesting because honestly, they played with that with uh, Anakin in, mm-hmm. you know, in star Wars where what is the, the prophecy actually saying he is going to do <laughs> like he's not really fated to do this thing. He did what he was fated to do. Because, you know, the Jedi were a little out of balance there. (laughs) If you throw in the Clone Wars, it gets even more complicated because apparently he was meant to become some kind of force god to help balance things and remove himself (laughs) from the equation. So he wasn't supposed to be acting on the mortal plane. But the Mortis trilogy is a really weird thing that we're not going to go into here. (laughs) But yeah, I think de-emphasizing the one when you make someone the chosen one. Actually, I think the way to phrase it is. You want them to be a chosen one. Well, I often set up my campaigns that the players are nudged in a particular direction. You don't want to force them in a particular direction. And sometimes doing a chosen one narrative can make the players feel like you're taking away their agency. Mm -hmm. You want them to choose to do the things that they are doing. So it it can work if you have a player or players who are like, yes, this needs to be done. This needs to be taken care of. But you don't want to get to the point where they're like, yeah, 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 I got to do this because this is what the gods told me to do. (laughs) Uh, Can we go get a drink first? Yeah. Something along those lines. Well, and it's funny because, again, bringing that back to Buffy, Buffy was chosen to kill vampires and demons. I mean, it's not one specific thing. It wasn't like, you know, just kill this one particular one. It was, that's her job. This is your job. Do your job. <laughs> so how do clerics get their abilities in your setting? Is this, did these things something they have to train for? Or are they just invested with the power from some divine source of magic? So what's interesting is I believe this is something that has had different answers over the years. I went back because we were going to do this episode and read what it actually says in the fifth edition player's handbook. And it does mention that clerics don't train to get their powers. They train in the proper use of their powers. They train in how to perform the rituals of their faith, but their training is not where they actually get their spells from. I have a friend who is currently in a campaign where the GM is trying to emulate some of the 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 old school ideas 
you level, but you don't get your new abilities until you've trained. <sighs> yeah. And she was just like, oh, that's some kind of bullshit. <laughs> and we were talking about it. And I'm like, you're a cleric. What training do you need to do? It's yeah. just your god decides you got your abilities. This other person is playing your sister. They're a sorcerer. What training do they have to do? That's like complete anathema to the whole idea of a sorcerer. A sorcerer just wakes up, rolls out of bed, and has new magic. I mean, honestly, you can apply that to so many things like Warlock. Like, is your patron going to say, you need to do this many push-ups before I will give you more spells? So she ended up using that argument on the GM, and and she and her sister got their (laughs) abilities while the poor fighter's like, Come on, man. <laughs> there are a couple settings that are D&D adjacent that kind of touch on this, too. This was kind of the way they explained it in fourth edition. But the primeval Thule setting, um, it was actually came out for Pathfinder and 13th Age first, but then they did a fifth edition version of it. And they actually go out of their way to say the gods really aren't gods. They're just super powerful outsider beings. But there are still clerics. The clerics still believe in the gods and they are basically they go through a ritual that invests them with divine power and it just kind of grows over time. But it's still not something they learn. It's that the secret priesthood finds somebody else they want to invest power in and they share the power with them. It's like I get the idea of, of wanting to require training because it can it can feel a little weird to just have the characters wake up one morning and have mm-hmm. these new powers. But at the same time, you have to you have to decide whether that's doing that type of thing is going to get in the way of the fun of your players. Yeah, because your players really want those shiny new abilities. So you got to find a balance there if that's what you're going for. And honestly, in the grand scheme of things, like I don't want to slow a campaign down to do this, but clerics would have to train to do certain things like, you know, they get better at using weapons, too. You know, so. Yeah. You know, they get their spells from their god, but they do still learn how to adventure and do things on a a day-to-day basis outside of their spells, you know, and that kind of increases that ability. The other thing that I thought was funny though, the other setting where they do investiture, which I love, is Pugmire. <laughs> because in Pugmire, like if you are a cleric, they invest you with the the power of the uh religion of mankind. <laughs> and the whole thing there is it's basically the way they explain it in that there is it uses very D&D 5e type rules and even spells and things like that. But the backstory is it's basically nanites. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the priesthood of, of man is just giving you nanites that let you do miraculous stuff. So let's move on to paladins. In previous editions, paladins were very closely tied with religion and gods. But in 5th edition, this changed with paladins, instead of being tied to a specific religion or god, devoting themselves to the ideals of an oath that grants them their abilities. How do you tie this into the setting in the world to give them connections that they used to get from being associated with religion? I think part of this is is that, you know, the the short answer is they can still be associated with a religion. It's just they're getting their power from their oath. Mm -hmm. And it actually kind of goes back to what we were saying about there being different orders. Like if you are a paladin of a certain church and you, you know, swear this certain oath, that is what you're doing. But we also know that the 5e mechanics behind the scenes are you 
believe in this oath and that's what's powering you, not necessarily the God. They do mention, though, that you are channeling divine power. It's just it's not you reaching out to the gods to do it. It's you being so focused on carrying out your oath that you are collecting this divine power. One of the things that I thought was neat in third edition D&D, they would basically say that people are called to be paladins and not everyone answers that call. So in other words, it's not it's not just like you are going to be the only paladin. It is that gods pick out like, okay, that one would be a good paladin. That would be a good paladin. And, you know, they basically give them this urge where they feel like they should be doing something, but maybe one in 10 actually ends up following through with it and actually becoming a paladin. That kind of feels like the sort of thing you could still view with paladins. Maybe it's not just gods, though. Maybe it is, you know, maybe it's an archangel. Maybe it's, you know, yeah, maybe if you have a an oath of conquest, it's it's a devil that decided, yeah, that's that was a good one right there. <laughs> I do still like that idea of paladins kind of being called. And part of why I like that is because the fifth edition mechanics kind of don't line up with how paladins are supposed to work. <laughs> because you believe in your oath extremely firmly once you get to it at third level. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things you need to discuss with your players or think about if you are playing a paladin is do you have a connection to an organization is there some sort of formal organized group out there that you are part of or are you just somebody who was called to this oath so strongly that you have found your own path and what's funny is i was kind of hoping we would do this particular episode about divine characters after we had started playing in a certain campaign, which I won't go into too many details <laughs> for, but I am playing a paladin in that campaign. And a lot of that is there are stages to how he feels that he's being called because he's, he knows he is being called to something greater than himself right now. He doesn't quite know how to embody that as an oath quite yet. Well, that leads into what you were saying about, those early levels of being a paladin where you don't have an oath. You don't get an oath until third level. This works better in some classes than others. So how <laughs> do you do this as a paladin? Yeah, it's, it's kind of tricky. I think in some cases you can know what your oath is going to be. You just don't get any powers until you formally, well, you get some powers. You don't get any powers associated with that oath until you take the oath. Yeah, because you get lay on hands right at first level. Right. So you're getting some sort of power from somewhere, but maybe it's that you don't fully recognize what that calling is or what that direction is going to be. Mm -hmm. And it's at third level that you have that divine revelation of what you, know, what you need to dedicate your life to. Me personally, whenever I read Paladin Oaths, the ones that I think work for me are the ones that tell you you should be doing this thing you should be facilitating this other thing you should be avoiding this thing there are some weird ones out there that are just sort of like you believe this it's like paladins I'm, and you know this is this is me and how i read the class paladins aren't are about believing in something they are about doing something mm -hmm. so i think even before you have your oath you should feel a call to do something not just a call to be something but I call to do something. You are called to take action. That's I think that's what the that's kind of the difference between a paladin and a cleric. A cleric, you might just have been called to 
be nice to people and heal them when they come to you. But if you're called to be a paladin, you are meant to find something that you are actively doing. Let's move on to druids. Druids are often lumped into the same category as clerics, labeling them as quote-unquote priests. They are different, though. So how do you handle their faith and divine or primal powers differently from clerics? I think what's interesting about that is because there is a reverence for nature there, there is still that feeling like they are serving something. You know, they are still kind of worshiping a thing. And obviously, you know, we get the idea of druids from actual priests that existed that yeah. were real. So it is a priesthood. But I think, you know, in D&D, especially now, it is that they they worship something that is not going to voice specific demands of them. Nature wants something from them, but it wants something subtle. You have to kind of read nature to understand what it needs from you, as opposed to, you know, a god either, you know, setting out their tenants in a book that you can read or literally showing up before you or sending an angel. Nature is something you're going to have to learn the ebb and flow of it and determine, okay, something's not right right now. What can I do to help ease this along? I think that kind of brings us to talking about the path that a character would take to become a druid in a game. What part do druidic circles play in the game? Are they just mechanics of what the character has access to as they, you know, devote themselves to those, you know, that path? Or is it actually a society? What what type of story element do you treat it as? I love the idea that the Druid circles are like a tradition. Like if you are from a circle of stars, there are other circle of stars, Druids, and they have passed this tradition from one circle of stars, Druid to mm -hmm. another. And maybe even once in a while, circle of stars, Druids, I'll get together and talk about stars. I like that as a setting element. What's a little bit weird is in the existing settings, because things have changed over editions, like in the forgotten realms, a lot of Druidic orders are still tied to gods. Mm-hmm. So it's a little harder to say that you would just have Circle of Stars druids in the Forgotten Realms because they're probably Circle of Stars druids that maybe also revere uh, Milaki. You know, it's 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 a little strange trying to balance what yeah what is now versus what was there before. In Baldur's Gate Three, Halson keeps referencing Sylvanas, so yeah. Jahira has no crap left to give so she doesn't reference her god but <laughs> i love that though i love the idea that there are there would be distinct circles like when you take that subclass you are part of that circle now what's interesting about the role-playing element there is again in the 2014 rules you don't get your circle until second level in the 2024 rules it looks like you won't be getting your circle until third level that means that you are called to serve nature and understand this balance of nature and study nature and revere it before you actually end up getting adopted by any circle. If you're going to make circles into a thing in your setting. I think it depends on how you play it mm -hmm. because you can have a character who has been trained in a circle, mm -hmm. but hasn't reached an affinity with nature enough to access those abilities. Yeah, it's very much like we were talking about with the uh, Paladin Oath. Like, you are part of this circle, but you haven't gone through the final rites and understanding to really get the benefits of that circle. But that also brings up a really interesting role-playing point. What if 
your druid is trained by a certain circle, but by the, it, by the time they come to adopt a circle, they do not adopt the circle that trained them initially. I think that could be a lot of fun for a backstory for a druid character. Yeah, that could be really interesting. I'm, I'm trying not to give any Baldur's Gate 3 storylines, but <laughs> there is a character who has been trained in one thing and ends up, I mean, depending upon how you play, because Baldur's <laughs> Gate 3 has a lot of opportunities for you to go in many different directions. But <laughs> Moving on to Rangers. I love Rangers. Yeah, I have, I have a soft spot for Rangers. Uh, they straddle a line between the Divine classes and the Martial classes, even more so than the Paladins do, I think. I think a paladin is always going to be a paladin, whereas a ranger can just sometimes be mistaken for a fighter a little <laughs> bit more. In previous editions, they were often tied to a nature deity, much like druids, but I don't think this is really referenced much in 5th edition at all. So how do rangers gain their abilities? This is actually an interesting one because I don't know that a lot of the ranger subclasses feel like they are traditions of rangers in the same way that the druid circles feel like that. Right. Like, yes, you could be a, a monster slayer that is trained by monster slayers, but that doesn't feel like it's so much an order that has been passed on as much as it is a job. What, what, what circle would you stick a gloom stalker in? I think there is, there could be some room to try and find organizations that are attached to certain ranger archetypes but I don't think it's as clear a story as you normally have. I think, and that's, what's interesting. Cause that's also kind of how I feel the difference between Rangers and Paladins have come across too, is Rangers are kind of practical when it comes to things like they revere nature, but they're also there just to kick something's butt. If they need to, <laughs> they aren't going to feel bad if they miss prayers one day or, you know, anything like that. Like they are supposed to be out there getting dirty, protecting people out on the trail it is a different feel than the paladin that might need to figure out how does this figure into the grand scheme of things, whereas the ranger might just be going, I don't know, there's something going on now, I'm going to go do it. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's, it's, you say that paladins should be doing, and I believe mm -hmm. rangers are the same. Rangers need yeah. to be out there doing. There is no sitting and meditating and philosophically considering the weight of the world in the way clerics or druids might i am motivated to look back on rangers and look at someone like aragorn i know there have been other famous examples but you know the whole thing with aragorn was that the rangers patrolled the wilderness like they they wandered around the wilderness looking for threats they left messages for other rangers so that they're all kind of checking in with each other to keep an eye on what's going on i think that is part of how playing rangers should go like even rangers from different different archetypes i think if they're doing the same general things they should probably be checking in with other rangers and they really feel like a class that associates with other members of their job description basically to get tips and to figure out what's going on and you know things like that i think that is something that's very easily missed mm -hmm. in a game because it's hard to have your it's not like rangers frequent cities yeah so it's not like you can say, oh, while you're in the city, you do, you go, you buy, you go by the guild and talk to them there. I think you'd have to, as a GM, if you want to make sure that this is available for your players, this type of interaction while they're out on the road, have them run into another ranger, mm -hmm. build that connection through those moments. You have to 
make sure you work it in. You can't just have the player go seek it out because they can't abandon the whole party or they shouldn't abandon the whole party. I do, though. I think that's a good role playing tip from the player side of things. If your DM gives you downtime, maybe try and flavor your downtime as I'm going to go check in with some other rangers, you know, wander out this way because I know this is where so and so patrols. And whatever your downtime is going to be, kind of flavor it as checking in with these other rangers and learning what's going on, as opposed to learning something by going to a library in the city or, you know, something like that. They're just camping and drinking ale in the woods. <laughs> yeah. Don't let them tell you otherwise. And then the last day of the trip, they go, oh, yeah, by the way, <laughs> this is the important <laughs> thing. It is. It's weird, though, because I think as far as training and rangers learning how to cast spells and things, if they had more subtle spells i almost like that aragorn like thing where it's like here's this herb i know this herb can do a thing that nobody else really understands that it can do and that's just a bit of ranger lore that someone passes on and that's great if your spells are mainly like about tracking or healing but rangers get some weird things like you know splitting their arrows into five different arrows to shoot things and (laughs) that doesn't feel like just a thing (laughs) that rangers would pick up yeah, ranger spells are sometimes feel a little odd. They sometimes feel a little tacked on. I kind of wish some of them were just more class abilities. I could go on about Hunter's Mark. Hunter's Mark should be a class ability. It shouldn't be a spell. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I will die on that hill. I don't care. Anyway, what I was going to say, though, is I will not refight the thing that I've seen fought since at least third edition where it's like, I want a, a spellless ranger because... That's not going to happen. That's not the way D&D is framing the Ranger. It's actually not the way D&D has really ever framed the Ranger other than alternate versions of the Ranger. Yeah. there's always, They've always been spellcasters. It's just how early in their progression they get spells. That said, I do wish Rangers had more subtle spells. I kind of agree with you. In previous editions, Divine characters could lose their abilities for transgressing against their beliefs and the will of their deities. In 4th edition, this changed with clerics being invested with their powers in such a way that they could never lose it once it was given, even if they turned against their god. In 5th edition, they avoided expressly talking about losing powers, but there is the Oathbreaker subclass for paladins hinting that it's still possibly a thing. So, should characters lose their powers if they go against their god? And how bad should it be? Is it possible for them to get their powers back? And if they have lost their powers, how do you handle that character in a game that is carefully balanced based on those characters having those abilities and now they don't? I really wish that more classes had the follow through that Paladins got with having the Oathbreaker. But also, I don't feel like the Oathbreaker got a lot of attention after it was introduced in the DMG. But I like the idea that if you fall... It's not fun to take abilities away from a player to say you can't use half of what your class does. So you're just a crappy version of a fighter or whatever, because you can't do these things. I really do like the idea, though, that your subclass changes and the subclass reflects you are not the thing that you thought you were. And if you want to be the thing you thought you were, you're going to have to work to get back to that. And in that case, the player still has toys to play with. They're just different toys because the narrative has shifted and they aren't the person that they were when they started playing the character. There were in, um, in MCDM's Arcadia magazine, they actually did have 
some clerical domains and some warlock subclasses that were expressly built for characters that had upset their god or their patron so that you know while you are in the state of you know not being in your in good graces there your powers work differently and you still had powers it didn't say you know you have these crappy powers but they were kind of flavored more towards i am trying to make this up to my god or you know i am trying to fly under the radar <laughs> and i really like that and um another place where i have seen this is if anybody is part of the patreon for the world beyond number podcast that Brennan Lee Mulligan and Abrea Iyengar and Lou Wilson and Erica Ishii are doing. They have a play test for the witch class and the witch class has a subclass that is the wicked witch subclass. And that is for a witch that has fallen from her beliefs. You can't start the game as a wicked witch. That is a subclass that happens when you have forsaken the coven that you pick out earlier on. And I love that. I really wish that anything that's kind of tied to an, an ideal or a higher power had a subclass that represents what happens if you are not doing things the way you should have been doing them. So talking about these ideals and stuff, I think we should take a moment and talk about alignment and divine classes. Fifth edition has downplayed alignment significantly. Yeah. Because it, it honestly had some problems. And we are going to take a moment and talk about paladins <laughs> and why nobody wanted anyone to play a paladin prior to third edition. And even after third edition, there were still times where it was like, oh, come on, man. Yeah. Most of the time, divine characters are supposed to have the same alignment as their deity or whatever it is they're worshiping. But that's not an issue in fifth edition. When you're talking about a character falling or coming out of step with their oath or their god, how do you handle that in a game where we're not really focusing on alignment that much? The funny thing was, I think in previous editions, this turned into a gotcha thing where it's like, oh, you decided to accept that free pastry and you didn't, you know, offer that person a silver when they gave you that free pastry. That's not very lawful good of you. I think you lost your paladin abilities. Poor monks. We're not talking about monks, but poor uh, monks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God forbid you actually wanted anything. Yeah, it it's ridiculous because it turns into this gotcha thing. I think when you when you change the paradigm to I'm not going to take anything away from you but you've been playing this character this way. That feels like something has changed with this character. Would you like to do something that represents the character changing as a collaborative thing that you talk to a player about and then maybe say, you know what? Even if we don't have the subclasses that represent, you know, falling or anything like that, that are in some of the third party books, maybe your paladin that was an oath of I'm blanking on oaths, <laughs> but I was going to say a really good, nice oath. <laughs> <laughs> and your person becomes a lot more hard edged, you might turn into an Oath of Conquest paladin because your outlook has changed and you've kind of become a more hardened person. I think that's the kind of thing you should talk to somebody about when you feel like role playing trends are changing, as opposed to having that line, that imaginary line in your head where you say, if they go past this, that's it. I'm pulling the trigger on this. In the City of Calls campaign, Alaric is a Tempest cleric of court. He's also a Genasi, but he does, he does whatever, just when things happen, just ignore it. 
He himself is chaotic neutral. Cord is chaotic good. And part of his journey as a character has been trying to find a balance between kind of his natural instincts and what Cord wants him to do. Mm-hmm. And we actually had a point where he went, he went a little hard on some minions of one of the the evil villains we were dealing with. He went a little harsh, way harsher than any of the rest of us were doing. We we're like, oh man, I can't believe you did that. And he's like, what? He was a thief. Mm-hmm. You know, very harsh. Well, on our journey after that he started having some problems. We were kind of being followed by storms. Magic wasn't quite working the way it was supposed to. And then he finally had a, (laughs) you know, come to God moment where Cord basically called him and was like, you are going to behave. What you did was unacceptable. And it wasn't anything that took his powers away. It just kind of added a, an element where it was a little harder for him to channel divine energy the way he had because yeah. he had fallen so out of step with Cord. And it was this nice role-playing, I thought it was nice, role-playing moment where it helped the character realize, you know, maybe maybe Alaric isn't ever going to be fully good. His instincts are a little too, you know, cutthroat. But at the same time, he is trying to be a better person. I, I think what's interesting, too, is that as much as I tend to downplay alignment, as much as uh, fifth edition has tried to, it's still there. And I think this is an interesting way to get that, that love letter from the person making their character. If they make a character that is chaotic neutral and they worship a lawful good God, that is a good time to ask, okay, why is this happening? I'm not saying no, I'm saying what happened that brought this about? Yeah. Why are you following this God who has a very different ethos than you do? And I think that can come with that can create some really good role playing moments. But I think you need to intentionally look at that. And and I think. God bless them. There are some players out there that when they know something isn't in the rules anymore, they will just push things. So they will they will be like, I can be chaotic, neutral and have a lawful good God. Ha ha. You know what? If they're not just being a jerk, but they had that moment. It's good to kind of reframe that and find out, okay, what are you thinking about this, though? How does your character think about this? Yeah, I think alignment is it can be a good ballpark, but I think you you got it on the nose when you said it used to be a gotcha moment. And I think that went both ways for both the GMs towards the players and damn paladins in early editions (laughs) in the game. It took me it took me until fifth edition before I was comfortable with the idea of somebody playing a paladin in a game I was running. It always bugged me because I, I always felt that paladins should be more aspirational rather than projecting their beliefs onto someone else. Even when paladins had to be lawful good, I always had that feeling like the paladin is going to model the behavior. They're not necessarily going to say you must act exactly like me. They're just going to go out of their way to make sure that the people that are most affected by temptation see them doing the right thing. I mean, I suppose we, we should we should acknowledge the fact that the satanic panic happened in the 80s and a lot of the players <sighs> yeah. who played paladins in the 80s and 90s were channeling all of the worst aspects <laughs> of that type of holier than thou religion. Yes. Yes. D- don't do that anymore. No. <laughs> 
Paladins can be your friends. It's good. <laughs> no time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to the listeners. It might be products, websites, videos, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. So while Hasbro isn't exactly our favorite corporation in the moment, and to be clear, you should never have a favorite corporation. No. They're corporations. They do not have your best interest at heart. No. <laughs> it is worth noting that they have recently put out a news release detailing all of the upcoming D&D releases. And of interest among these are the new versions of the Player's Handbook in September, the Dungeon Master's Guide in November, and the Monster Manual in February of 2025. Now, there is no new edition attached to the name. They're just calling them revised versions. So we're still kind of waiting to see how this plays out in the vernacular because people are either going to start calling it 6th edition or calling it 5.5. Yeah, I noticed, um, you know, like Roll20 when they announced that they will have these books, which is another thing. Roll20 has announced they are definitely going to have the 2024 versions of the rules. They're still an official affiliate, so that's not anything to worry about there. But they are very specifically just calling it the 2024 edition of Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> so that year is getting a lot of traction for what uh, what version of D&D this is right now. <laughs> well, I think, I think Wizards very much does not want to call it a specific edition. There's a lot of... No. There's a lot of trauma that's attached to 3.5 and... Calling it 6th edition makes people think they can't use materials that they have. Yeah. I understand the carefulness with this. From, from the last round of playtests that we saw, it is going to be at least as compatible as 3.5 was with 3rd edition. Yeah. Which means most of the time you're going to be able to use stuff. Every once in a while you're going to run into something and say, I got to change this around. Yep. So the other thing I was going to bring up since uh, Ange brought up all of those other announcements about the, the core rules is Wizards of the Coast also provided a release date for Dungeons & Dragons The Making of Original D&D, 1970 to 1977, which is a book about the creation of the original game. So I've read like a ton of histories about this time and who did what and where things went off the rails and where there was collaboration and who actually did things. I'm really curious to see what the story looks like when it is framed by the company that owns the IP, because... I don't know how critical they are going to feel they can be about certain people and about the things that they did. And to be honest, I mean, what it also a lot of what it boils down to is don't pick a side. Everybody, everybody probably did both more and less than you thought they did back when back when you were uh, looking at names on the covers of books. Yeah, I am. I'm friends with one of the authors and it was being discussed on Facebook today. And one of the comments I made is that. In the interview he does with Jeremy Crawford about this, his name is Jason Tondra, by the way, it, he very much says that D&D is very much the product of both Arneson and Gygax. Mm -hmm. And the comment I said is I was appreciative that he made sure that that balance was there because after my reading of some of the D&D histories, the game I love would not exist without Arneson's influence but the game I love would have never happened and reached the audience it did without Gygax's drive. Yes, exactly. Honestly, I think if Gygax had designed it by himself, it would have looked a lot more like the dungeon crawling board games that we see now, like Descent. Yep. Rather than something that actually has you getting into your character's head and moving around in that space. Yeah. 
So I'm I'm really curious to read it though. It, it's gonna be a beefy book. The comment made in the interview was like, "This thing can stop bullets." <laughs> the other thing that's interesting with all of these other announcements that happened, I did not see "Descent into the Lost Caverns of Sajkamp" anywhere on this list. And they mentioned at PAX Unplugged last year. That's one of the things that they threw out about. This is going to be a thing that comes out in 2024. And it's going to be a special thing that is only a digital release, but it's going to be a full release. It's not going to be like a short supplement. It's going to be a full adventure, but it is only going to exist in electronic form. And there's no mention of when that is coming out in any of these announcements. That's interesting. And it kind of makes me wonder if it's still on the um, if it's still on the docket anymore. Either maybe it had to get temporarily shelved. Well, that's what I'm wondering, because with a lot of the staff not being there after the layoffs yeah maybe they don't have the power to pull off this kind of digital only experiment that they wanted to do with it i could be wrong they could have say you know they could say tomorrow yeah it's gonna be out blah blah blah. but it that did just not appear in any of these announcements for when things are releasing it also could have been that they were they were they were announcing book releases i mean that's true but it's you know they did re- they did talk about core books, adventures, and this you know the making of original D and D, which is a variety of different products. So it does feel like maybe that would have fit in with that when they're talking about it. But we'll see. It's it's just it's just interesting. I'm curious to hear what's going on with that. Well, moving on out of here, we are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network. So we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying us. Consider checking out Pandas Talking Games. Queer gamers talking about tabletop role-playing games and making outtakes. Join Pandas Phil and Senda every Wednesday, answering listener questions about playing, running, and designing PTRPGs. Get cozy and let's talk about some games. We have used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you, and we hope you'll go exploring with us when we start our next adventure.